Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our guest today has one of the most exciting roles in women's sport right now as Chief Operating Officer Australia for the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2023. She took on that role after heading up the successful bid team, the latest success in a career that spanned a range of experiences from events to the Australian Olympic Committee before returning to the football world. To talk about all that and an exciting run into 2023, today's trailblazer is Jane Fernandez. life in your lockdown land? Yes, we're surviving like everyone working from home um, in lockdown. It's, it's interesting setting up a FIFA Women's World Cup team during this period as, you know, we've got all these new starters coming on board, but we're all doing this from home. So Teams is our favourite new friend. But it's been, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been interesting and challenging, but also exciting getting the team on board in this time. We have been in that role for, what is it now, is it a couple of months? Officially as the Chief Operating Officer, yeah. So after the bid, I was head of the FIFA Women's World Cup office for Australia. And then that's now morphed into the COO role now that the FIFA entity is established. So, yeah, a more formalised process, if you like, in adopting or, or moving into the COO position. Well, we do love a lot of acronyms in the business world. What does COO entail as distinct from, say, a CEO or a CFO or all the other uh, alphabet titles? Let me tell you, major events definitely love an acronym. We've got so many of them that we work with, but Chief Operating Officer. So I've got nine direct reports really focused on the operational delivery and the planning leading into the, the delivery for Australia for the FIFA Women's World Cup. Anything from operations, which is stadiums and the overlay part, to services, competitions, so thinking about the teams or the facilities that the teams need to use, communications, and then, of course, there's broadcasts, one of your favourite areas, um, and then technology as well. And then on top of that, we have a host city relations manager and then, of course, a project manager as well. So it's all of sort of like the nuts and bolts, if you like, the basic foundations that really allow us to create the stage for the players to go and perform at their best. And we know that we've had FIFA out in Australia and New Zealand uh, trying to have a look at various sites. What sort of challenges has the pandemic presented? Well, let me tell you. So uh, there were 20, <laughs> 20, 20 wonderful people from FIFA Zurich who travelled over to New Zealand and did their 14-day quarantine there. And uh, the Australian section, we had this fantastic plan mapped out. And a couple of days before they were due to arrive into Australia, we just watched, watched COVID bubbling away. And we were like, mm, I think we're going to have to flip this. Um, originally, they were going to start in Sydney. And so we were like, that's not going to happen. So we very quickly turned the inspection tour. So they started in Perth. 
and went from there. However, they landed in Perth the day that um, Adelaide said, if you've been in Perth, you're not coming. So what that meant was we uh, we rallied and thank goodness for the support of all of the governments, both state and federal, we were able to get exemptions for them to travel to every host city. We couldn't go with them. It was quite a process. My team did the most unbelievable job. But, you know, we, we, set, the, uh, we set the goal, the target of making sure that the FIFA team could look at every single stadium and we were able to achieve that. Wow, what a chain of events just to make something that should be relatively simple happen. Of course, you're putting together a team to work here because there is not an an LOC or a local organising committee. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a different model. So normally major events are a local organising committee. Um, My most recent experience would be the Asian Cup here in Australia. And all that means is that the LOC was a subsidiary of Football Australia. So that model has shifted. So all it means is that we we basically work for FIFA. So the local entity is a FIFA-owned entity. So we we work with our counterparts in Zurich. We um, strategize together. We plan together. And we go forward and we deliver together as one team. And putting together that team when you can't meet anyone face-to-face, what, what sort of different adventures has that thrown up? Well, it's been so interesting. I mean, all of the interviews for the heads of were done via Teams as well. And so learning to, you know, interviewing people on Teams, I always feel for the candidate because it's so hard and, you know, they've got questions coming at them from different angles. So everyone's done such an amazing job in being able to do that. And then, of course, you know, I'm a true believer in the the best way to create culture and, and these major events only work well when you've got a really strong team culture and the easiest way to do that is when you're in the same space and you're working together because you do end up being in the trenches together to deliver these major tournaments. Um, so we're just finding new ways to connect via teams. There are a couple of people that have joined the entity that I've worked with before. So that always helps in the, in the establishment of culture and we take the culture through. And hats off to all of the newbies who have just, you know, embraced this new way of connecting creating culture Um, and one of the things during the interview process was ensuring that we we brought on people that were just so passionate about the FIFA Women's World Cup and that's what we have here. We have the most unbelievably passionate group of people and so, you know, we're starting from a really good position. We're all aligned to what we want to achieve and that's the way we'll go forward. Of course, we are co-hosting with New Zealand and you've got a counterpart in your role, just to confuse things, who I believe is also called Jane. (laughs) (laughs) Are you quite independent or or how do you actually work together on the same event, which is in two different countries? No, we work really closely and we call the other Jane JP, so we don't get, so there's not too much confusion. Um, So JP and I have been working together for a year now. So she came on to, to manage the New Zealand operations not long after the bid, actually. So together, we do, we work really closely together because what's going to be super important is that we deliver a tournament that has a consistent look and feel. We want fans and teams to have the same experience no matter which country they're in. Um, you know, the As One brand is still something that we, we, we want to achieve and we will achieve that working together. So we strategize together, uh, we problem solve together, and whilst we're dealing with different uh, stadiums and training sites, the overarching theory is consistent. So, yeah, we've, we've built a really strong team across the two countries, and so it's working really well. You mentioned the, the theme of that bid as one. It was such an exciting time, particularly for those in Australia who, as a, a broad look at the general public, they heard World Cup bid and thought, oh, we've got our fingers burnt this time. However, there seemed to be so much enthusiasm for the idea of, of the Women's World Cup. Was it just a completely different project? Yeah, completely different from the Men's World Cup experience. 
And I think, you know, I think it was a sign of where women's sport uh, is and was at the time when we were bidding. And, you know, even the engagement with governments straight away, it was like, this is a fantastic opportunity. We have to invest in this and we have to just take it on. Um, and so I didn't encounter any negativity at all in any of the stakeholders that we worked with. Everyone sort of bought in straight away to what this Women's World Cup can achieve. Um, you know, no doubt the, um, the success of the Matildas also helped that, you know, one of Australia's most loved favourite teams. And so, you know, that really helped as, as well. And then the opportunity, once FIFA expanded the competition, the opportunity to come with New Zealand as one to deliver a tournament, a tournament of first, you know, the first time across the Asia Pacific region. Again, there was nothing but 100% support from, from all the key, key stakeholders. And tell me what the process was like. I think that when, when you live in Australia and you're at the grand old age that I am, you remember the Sydney Olympics and I think just think. Same age, <laughs> <laughs> okay, when you're as young as I am in that case. And you remember the Sydney Olympics and what a monumental success that was. And you think, wow, Australia hosting a major international event is a no-brainer. But take us back to the night of the announcement. There seemed to be a, a few last-minute, not doubts, but perhaps there was a thought that maybe it wasn't going to be as simple as we thought. Was that what it was like from the inside? Well, like you, you, whilst you may have commitment from FIFA council members that they will support your bid, you never know until the bids are cast. And, you know, because of COVID, this, this time it was, all, um, it was all done electronically. So, you know, fingers crossed everyone knew how to use the app properly and, and press the right button to make sure <laughs> they did vote for Australia and New Zealand. Um, so I think there's always that sense of anxiety as you go into these things because it's really true. You just don't know until the votes are cast. And we put so much effort into building an event around the event of the announcement as well. We lit up the Sydney Opera House and we had the trailblazer Julie Dolan there who was absolutely overcome with emotion seeing her image, you know, right across the Opera House. She, she said, I could never have imagined that would even be possible. So we had this massive build-up and then we had a period of time where we, was, we were sort of you know, waiting and, and working the phones and, and then, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, the announcement was made. So, yeah, a huge relief, huge joy, great celebration. Um, and it's crazy to think we're still, that was a, that was COVID at the beginning and, and here we are today still celebrating in that way. Hilarious vision of when the successful bid was announced and we saw all of you start quite socially distant in, in that room at, at, as was FFA headquarters and that all of course went to pieces when everyone was joyously jumping around. When you heard Australia and New Zealand announced, was it joy? Was it relief? Was it something completely different? It, I mean that leap was fueled by adrenaline, <laughs> relief, absolute joy. All the words you used are the words you know, when you put so much time and effort into, into a project, it, I mean, it felt like winning the gold medal. That's the closest thing I'll ever come to winning a gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> and the team that were involved in it, such a wonderful group of people who committed so much time and energy to the bid. So I felt so happy for them as well because it's, you know, 50-50. You never know what the outcome's going to be. But regardless of that, we all took the risk and we... we um, you know, with such great passion, we committed to the project. So, yeah, absolute joy and absolute relief for sure. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Today's Trailblazer is Jane Fernandez, the Chief Operating Officer, Australia for the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2023. Jane, take us back to the start of Jane Fernandez. Sydney born and bred, correct? 
Correct. Sydney born and bred, educated in Sydney. I grew up in a suburb called Lane Cove. We moved around a little bit, but basically Lane Cove. And I was really fortunate to have been educated at a at a high school whose founder has actually said back in the 1700s that women in time will come to do much. So <laughs> you know, that, that was that was right through my my education. So you know, we left we left that school with you know this belief and this confidence that hey, what are you talking about? We can do we can do anything. What do you mean? <laughs> was there any thought that you might have a foray into a, a sporting career? Were you a sporty kid? Yeah, I was a really sporty kid. Nothing amazing at you know top top level or anything. But our whole weekends, I'm one of four kids, and the weekends were spent poor mum and dad driving us around to. Um, to numerous sporting grounds. I remember there was one winter, I think I was playing three sports maybe, and mum was like, just so we're clear you're never doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. And and how about as a student? Were you bookish? Yeah, I was I wasn't too bad. I was just committed. I just worked hard, you know, not you know, off the Richter Bright, but I just worked hard. And I think that sort of uh, that work ethic I saw from my mum and dad. Um, and that's the work ethic I've taken into my right throughout my career. The first actual, the first sporting event I ever organised was at school. It was the teacher v students uh, year 12 volleyball match. And um, I had to change what we would normally do because the netball courts were being renovated. So the PE teacher, who, who is, a, is a great woman, she's still at the school, actually. And she was like, well, okay, if you want to do this, you can do it if you organise it. So I did. And so I think that was the that was the start of it all. Ah, that was where you got a, a taste for it. It, of course, evolved into your career as a force in sports administration. Was that your plan when you were at school or was that something that just quite organically grew out of where you went to uni? No, it was it was a plan to work on major events. I, I remember the first major sporting event I went to, I remember Dad took us to a Wallabies game. And uh, I think I was hooked from there. Um, I knew I'd never, you know, make it on the pitch, but I, but I just loved the environment. I loved the energy and the emotion and just watching the crowd and how, you know, we, we buy into um, the success or not of the team that we're watching. You know, in football, we talk about 90 minutes, 90 emotions. And that roller coaster ride and being able to be part of it in some way really inspired me. So... I knew I wanted to do something in that area and I was fortunate there was a degree um, in leisure management at University of Technology. So that's what I did after school. And, you know, as luck would have it, we won the Sydney Olympic Games at the perfect time for me. So that's sort of, that was the first big major event. I was a young punk, you know, learning the ropes with um, some awesome, awesome people back in Sydney 2000. Well, you did move into events. The Olympic Coordination Authority, what even is that? <laughs> yeah, so you had SOCOG, but you also had OCA, the Olympic Coordination Authority. So the, the authority delivered all of the venues. So out at Sydney Olympic Park, developed Sydney Olympic Park and all of the stadiums ran the precinct. So we worked really closely with SOCOG, but we had a little bit of a different, a different focus. Yeah, I worked there for a number of years um, and created lifelong friends. I think that's what this industry does and it's sport as well. You work so many hours together and, you know, you ride that roller coaster of the highs and the lows together and you really form these, these bonds. And I think that's what attracts us all into this industry. Do you get to many sporting events that you're not actually working on? Are you a, a fan <laughs> of any particular team? <laughs> um, I haven't for a long time. And it's funny because it becomes work. You feel a little bit like, oh, I don't really want to do that on the weekend. But I, you know, I did actually, I went to Bledisloe last, when we could go, when was that? Last August. So I did get to a, a sporting event. And I also was really lucky to have gotten to the women's cricket 
final at the MCG just before oh, well. so yeah I do I definitely do go when I can well you'll be looking to recreate that atmosphere certainly when the women's world cup final is on your time at Telstra Stadium was that a progression for were you already in Olympic Park precinct and did you yeah. just sort of cross the road <laughs> I was yeah goodness I forgot it was called Telstra Stadium then now it's ANZ Stadium it's had so many <laughs> my goodness <laughs> uh, yeah so I applied um it was a year after the Olympics and I applied for a role there and I applied to work with Todd Greenberg and um so Toddy was my was my boss there fantastic leader probably one of the the first leaders that had a real impression on me. His leadership style is one of care and compassion, you know, people first. And I think that really had an impact on me and it's, it, it aligns with my style, my natural style anyway. So it was interesting to see that type of leadership style and, and how you can get the best out of people when you lead in that way. But, yeah, working at the stadium just taught me so, so much. It was a phenomenal learning experience and really set me up for where I am today. Does it make you giggle sometimes when you you go into a stadium? You see all the people filing in. All they're interested in is that the ticket scan properly. The line for the toilets is not too long and there's plenty of food and beverage on hand. There's something very grounding about working on the other side of it, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And it's it's great because we don't want the fans coming to the stadium to know what else is happening. We just, we just <laughs> you know, we want them to be able to park their cars or get on the bus and because their experience is really um, created from the moment they leave their home to the moment they return back to their home. So all of these pieces of the puzzle have to come together to make sure the experience is one that they want to repeat. And, and that's our job. They don't need to know everything else that's happening behind the scenes. They just need to have a great time. Now, Jad, 2005 looks like where your football journey started. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that come about? Was that just a new opportunity? That was at the time you'd remember when a number of the um, Australian rugby team, John O'Neill became the CEO of Football Australia, Football Federation Australia then, and um, a client, rugby were a client of mine at, at the stadium. And so a guy by the name of Stu Taggart, who I'm sure you, you've met along the way, yeah. So <laughs> Stewie was my client and he, he took me with him over to football. So he said, we're revamping the major events department and, um, you know, come with me, let's, let's do this. There was also already some people there in football that were also working in the department. But that was just a phenomenal opportunity to be able to create something from nothing and to really rebuild. And because um, and, it was the year that, well, one, we were qualifying for the Germany World Cup, but also it was the creation of the league. And so it was, I mean, geez, we worked hard, but, you know, we played hard as well. We had a fantastic time and it was this really fantastic rebirth of the game in Australia. Your first foray into bid operations, uh, 2009, how much did that experience differ from your experience on the Women's World Cup bid? Because I'm going to take a guess that you're in a more junior role or a different role. Yeah, I was. I, um, I moved out of the events team with Stu to work with him on the, on the bids. Personally, what an experience to learn and to really set me up for what we achieved for the Women's World Cup bid. Um, so we were doing the Men's World Cup and the Asian Cup at the same time. Lost one, won one. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, understanding the FIFA processes, understanding um, the contracts, all of the documentation that goes into a bid, plus also the partnerships that you need with governments, um, the relationships that really take you further in order to achieve what you want to achieve. They, that, they were all the key learnings. And then also because we won the Asian Cup, we delivered that super well. 
um, all of these experiences have sort of led to where I am today. So knowing what to do on a bid, and I'm just so grateful for the people like Stewie Taggart and, and others that sort of helped guide the team, teach, teach us what to do and how to do it. And I think it's a great legacy story, really, that, you know, we invested in these bids and over time, you know, finally we, we've got we've got a, a World Cup to host. A wonderful development from the, the Asian Cup in 2015. Uh, that experience of delivering that successful international event on home soil, as you say, has put you in such good stead for seeing what that looks like on an even bigger scale. Tell me what that experience was like rolling that out, because there were occasions where I think all the organisers had to think on their feet, particularly when uh, you look at the, the stadiums and, and you've got Australia playing one of the finals in Newcastle and you're thinking, oh, no, we need more seats and, and what do we do and how do we handle mm. this? And it was just such an exciting energy around it. And I, and I do have to say that I watched it all from a studio because I was working for the ABC on, on their hosting. I didn't get to one match. I saw it all oh, through the camera. Show, <laughs> but it seemed to be just all these moving parts that came together so well many moving parts, which is really what happens in any major event. But I think that one of the best things was I think this tournament or the Asian Cup really took everyone by surprise. I think that people didn't really understand how this tournament was going to really take over. And we, we, we invest a lot of time and energy into developing this fantastic multicultural community program. And, you know, seeing all these different communities take part in the Asian Cup was just phenomenal. I mean, one of, the, one of my most favourite, favourite matches was in Canberra. It was a rugby run. And it was phenomenal. We'd sold out the stadium. Um, there were buses and buses of people that had travelled from Sydney for the match. It was absolutely phenomenal. And then, you know, we go forward. Yes, of course, the Socceroos lost a certain match that we thought they were going to win, which took us to Newcastle. <laughs> and we did um and ah about installing these seats or not. Um, we decided not to at the end of the day just because the cost of doing that would probably outstrip the value of the ticket. <laughs> so we decided not to do it. Um, but, you know, led us on that road to that phenomenal final um, at Stadium Australia with the Socceroos becoming champions of Asia. I mean... You know, you can't write this script. This is just the ups and downs and the rollercoaster ride of major sporting events. You'd like to write that script, though, wouldn't you? Do you do, does a little part of you sit there crapping yourself that the home team's not going to make it and then <laughs> what happens if it falls flat? <laughs> well, you know what? Having watched and ridden every uh, every every kick of the Olympics, you know, I mean, we're, we're all on the edge of our seats and so, so proud of the Matildas. What an amazing um, campaign that they had. But, you know, no, we just, we just want them to do the best that they can and, um, and we, you know, we believe in them and, and we know that they'll go far. I mean, how wonderful if they could hold that cup high at Stadium Australia um, at the end of August in 2023. That would just be phenomenal. Oh, it'd be huge. Uh, you mentioned the Olympics. Uh, General Manager of Sport at the AOC, that was your next role after the Asian Cup. Uh, what did that entail and why did you decide to move out of football? Yeah, so at the end of the Asian Cup, so I was on a contract for the Asian Cup, and so the contract comes to an end at the end of the tournament, and this was a great opportunity, and I applied for the role and, and was successful in, in getting that role. And it's a really, it's a different way to look at events, uh, or Olympics, I should say, because all of the others I delivered were from an LOC perspective. This was a great opportunity to really round out my, my skills and do it from a team perspective. So we were responsible for the Australian team. So all of the selections, um, getting the team there, getting the team home, managing the team in Rio, 
Um, and it was a really challenging game. There was a, a lot of a lot of things we had to overcome in the Rio environment with, you know, village not being ready. I remember we, we moved into the village and there were leaks and broken toilets and mirrors and all sorts of things that we had to, you know, deal with before the athletes started to arrive. But again, it's about our role is to create the best possible platform for the athletes to perform at their best. And it was great for me to see it from a team perspective and live in the village and, and understand the stresses of the athletes. And I think it's it was a real, um, a really positive experience for my career to be able to know that I've seen it now from all sides. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Fifa's Jane Fernandez is our trailblazer today. Uh, Jane, you mentioned a couple of people who've had an impact on your career, the likes of a Todd Greenberg or Stu Taggart. Did you have specific mentors? Well, if I go back to my school days, um, we were assigned mentors at school and I was assigned the principal of all, of all people, uh, <laughs> a wonderful woman called um, Margaret Honor, who was probably the first female leader that um, I learned so much from. So I think that sort of, you know, set me up, put me in a really good position to, to, to become a leader myself from what I learned from her. But then I would say there was a bit of a, a time when there weren't that many other female leaders in the industry. In saying that, though, if I go back to the Olympic Coordination Authority days, there was a phenomenal woman there called Jane Woodruff. And Jane worked for the OCA. She was responsible for, for accessibility and a whole range of other things in in the tournament, it was the first time I'd actually seen a female leader around the table with, I think everyone else were, were, were guys. And again, that was a really great experience to, to witness that. And I know the saying is rolled out all the time. If you can't see it, you can't bear it. But there is a real truth to that. And then, you know, further on in my career, I've worked with some amazing females like Jill Davies, who Jill is really the woman behind all of these major events. She was the mastermind of the Sydney 2000 Games. And also the most recent Brisbane Olympic bid. So, you know, while she's not forward-facing, she has taught me so much. She worked with us on the bid for the Women's World Cup. So there's been a number of different um, male and female mentors and and leaders. Todd, you mentioned, is still a great mentor of mine and I I lean on him from time to time when I need some advice. So I've been been so fortunate. And, you know, it's these people that give their time. And then there are these people that want everyone to exceed around, succeed around them. And so, and that's what I hope to give back to others as well. You know, take the time to, to give back from what I've learned. So the principal was your mentor at school. Were you a teacher's pet? <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me just let me just set this set this right. Everyone had a mentor, you didn't have a choice. <laughs> Yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> you, you mentioned when you sat around those those tables in, in, in boardrooms or in organisational committees, how unusual at the time when you started it was to see a female. You came out of, correct me if I'm wrong, a, an all-female school as well. Uh, do you feel like that em- empowered you? Um, I just think it was, a, we had a really strong sense of belief instilled in us. And I think, you know, there's a bit of confidence in that and I think that we were yeah we were led to believe that we we could sit around the table with anyone like it didn't you know it didn't matter gender background didn't matter and so yeah I think it was a really fortunate way to be educated but I mean you know you you come out of that you are in a bit of a bubble and then you come out of that environment it's like oh okay now 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 we've got to really see how we can make this work 
<laughs> There's a whole wide world out there. <laughs> and, and it really is about taking up opportunities that are offered to you, isn't it? But how do you know what's right to take take on? Have you ever uh, had to turn things down or felt that a, a role perhaps wasn't for you or maybe decided that you weren't ready for something yet? Or have you just grasped everything that's come your way with both hands? No, I've definitely, I have turned down. There's one role in particular I turned down. It was a bit outside of sport, but I just knew after the first interview that it just wasn't for me. And it, and it, was, um, it was quite a good learning actually to know what you don't want and to know how to say no. I'm a really big believer in following your gut. My gut's usually right. So if I can tune into that, it really does set me on the right path. So I think that's quite helpful. But also, you know, I, I do my research. So I, I look into where I'm going and, and I know the things that I'm passionate about and the things that inspire me. And as long as I'm taking opportunities that continue to do that, that, that leads to great experience, at least to success. And it leads to, you know, working with like-minded people where your values are aligned. And how about working out of your comfort zone? Is that an important part of development? Because some of your roles, even though you've had a trajectory that it, it makes sense as it goes up through, through the various roles, is there a time where you think you just needed to take that step and do something that you weren't comfortable doing to, to grow? Yeah, 100%. I'm, by nature, I'm a back-of-house person. I'm not a front-of-house person. So, you know, talking to you today, for example, or, you know, I've had to really lean into the discomfort of, of telling my story or of being a spokesperson. That doesn't come naturally to me. So I really have to work on that a lot. So, yeah, that's definitely been a real learning for me, just to lean into the discomfort and just to do it anyway. Um, you know, playing it safe and, and staying back doesn't help you grow. And that's where the, the, the biggest growth comes from this leaning into the discomfort. That's what I've learned over time. But it, it's quite, it's challenging. It's always, it feels better to not go into the discomfort. But if you don't, you don't grow. You sit in such a senior position. Sometimes that can be difficult on its own. It can be lonely. H have you ever encountered challenges where, uh, people are challenging you without it specifically being personal? Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. And I think one thing that I, I've learned over time that everyone has a view of everyone and everyone has their own perception and their own truth, depending on their past experience and what they've heard, what they've learned, and they make up their minds about certain things and certain people. And I think I think it's important not to take things personally, especially when you are, you know, the leader. I think that being open um, and understanding someone else's story and seeking first to understand before you're being understood is really important in those situations. Um, but yeah, I think that when you're leading a team, there's always going to be situations where people might not agree with you. They might not agree with the path that you want to take. But I think that if you build a team, your values are aligned, you've all bought into the vision and you're working towards a common goal, that really helps in bringing people along even if they might not agree with you at the start um, if you can explain it quite well they will come on board but I've definitely had leadership situations where people have decided they don't actually want to come along the journey with me and you know they've been really tough learning experiences to know that not everyone's going to like you not everyone's going to agree with you um, but and that's okay that's okay very hard to adapt to, though, isn't it? And then for some people, it's, it's very confronting to find that, to be able to accept that, especially in the days where we live in 
with social media everywhere in our current environment where everyone can share that opinion they have oh, with anyone. So if true. we've got uh, young women who want to be the next Jane Fernandez, what's your advice to them if they wanted to follow your path? Yeah, well, I'd say really do what you're passionate in and you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about sport and major events, then absolutely go for it. But also, um, you know, there's a lot of commitment, a lot of work. You've got to work super hard at this. This It's a crazy industry. It's uh, it's not your normal nine to five, that's for sure. There are big days, but I can guarantee that you'll have a ball of a time. You will work with some fantastic people. You'll create team. And if you're like me and you're all about the people and about the team, then you will you will just love it. And I, I just recommend it to anyone. If, if that's your passion, go for it. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Today's Trailblazer, Jane Fernandez, has taken some time out of her very busy schedule to have a chat to us today. And Jane, of course, we find you in Australia because all the borders are closed, but quite often in the past year or so, you've been jetting around the world. Where's your favourite place in, in your entire career? Where's your favourite place been to go for work? Well, my last big work trip was the Women's World Cup in 2019 to France. I remember sitting with you in a train station. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I remember some of the images you showed me. That was a great day. We'll save that for another conversation, Steph. But, I mean, that was fantastic. What a great tournament and what a great place to visit. I mean, who doesn't love France? So... You know, that's my that's the that's my most recent trip, but been to a couple of men's World Cups as well. And I've done a couple of Olympics being Rio and, and Athens. Um, so, you know, so fortunate. I've had some wonderful, wonderful trips, wonderful work and life experiences through this industry. I'm forever grateful. I really am. And how about uh, if you go somewhere for leisure, do you have a, a spot that you like to travel to when it's not about work and you're just going to chill? Yeah, anywhere by the beach, really. I've got some great mates that have a holiday house down at Girola, so that's always helpful to hang out hang out down there. I did have a fantastic, now I'm showing my age, my 40th, a few years ago now, a great trip to New York. That was phenomenal. That was uh, that was definitely a highlight. So fingers crossed, you know, we can uh, we can get travelling again. I'm double vaxxed now, so I'm ready to go. I'm with you. Let's get on a plane. It's not as easy as it sounds, though, is it? <laughs> Uh, how about career highlights? We've talked through uh, any number of them over the past half hour or so. Is there something that stands out to you that you're particularly proud of? Well, obviously the beard has to be number one because, you know, that was such an epic ride, you know, and and, and obviously the outcome was, it was you know, what we all hoped, hoped for. So that's definitely number one. I think the Asian Cup and, and all of the work that went into delivering that tournament and culminating in that amazing final um Socceroos winning champions of asia again i mean it's so great when you put all this work and effort in and you get the right result i mean you just can't you can't beat that but i will also always be really have a really fond memory of the sydney olympic games because that really was for me created the platform for me to keep going in my career and you know grateful for all of the people that i met during that time that really helped shape who i am today is there any appetite to pop up again at Brisbane in 2032? Oh, with my Zimmer frame. <laughs> <laughs> but I, look, I would say it, it, Australia, we have this most amazing runway to 2032 with all of these unbelievable events. Next year, we've got the women's basketball. 
We've got the World Cycling, there's a Netball, a World Cup in 2027. Hopefully there'll be a Rugby World Cup coming too. So, you know, there's so many opportunities leading into 2034. But I think 2034, I might I might leave that to the young punks who are coming through. Or 2032 <laughs> First up though, you're delivering a Women's World Cup in Australia or across Australia and New Zealand. Your responsibility, obviously, on Australian shores. What does it mean when all the eyes are going to be focused here? For football in this country, often... There's a challenge that we play in a very congested marketplace. What does it mean for Australia in football terms? Oh, this is just huge. This will be a football takeover of, of Australia. We'll have games being played from the east to the west coast, you know, a mixture of boutique to mega stadiums, which is exactly the model that we wanted, all in rectangular stadiums, which is really important to FIFA and important for our game. Um, for me, one of the most important things is about visibility. And so... The visibility of female athletes, our footballers, the best in the world, playing here on home soil, um, an opportunity to showcase these amazing athletes, to create new heroes for young girls and boys, and to also showcase female leaders both on and off the pitch as well. I think from a social and economic perspective, um, the impact studies we did shows that there's a benefit of $450 million dollars you know, 3,000 jobs created, 5,000 women in mentor programs. Um, the opportunity for development is just huge. And then off the back of that participation. So this will really accelerate the growth of women's football in Australia and New Zealand as well. Uh, football Australia has launched an amazing Legacy 23 plan being spearheaded by Sarah Walsh and Mark Falvo. Um, we want to get to 50-50 by 2027 in registered players. We want more infrastructure, more football-specific infrastructure, we want more leaders throughout all levels of our game, female leaders that can really help amplify the game. So, and then of course, you know, we are selling Australia and reminding the world that Australia is open for business to the world. And, you know, we know that the broadcast numbers for France were over a billion. You know, that's the number of people, the eyeballs that are going to be on our country and also on New Zealand. What amazing tourism benefits and we're ready to welcome the world. We can't wait. Certainly, and I'm very much hoping that COVID is no longer part of our vernacular by then, and it's uh, all much simpler. From a diplomacy aspect, it gives you uh, certainly a front row seat into how many different markets FIFA works in. Uh, how much of a communication tool do you feel football is? Because it seems to work in every language, doesn't it? Football, it really is the language that we all speak. So football opens the doors to so many opportunities. And we've seen politicians over the years um, engage with foreign nations through using football. You know, we've got players, um, both men and women, that play right around the world. And there have been instances where politicians have taken with them famous Australian footballers because it's a language, it's a, com it's a common conversation that you can have. Um, we saw it in the Asian Cup as well. Um, when, you know, you, you've got royalty in a room, um, you've got the movers and shakers in business all in the room together, and the opportunity to do business is going to benefit the country through football is something that I know Football Australia is very focused on doing. You just made me giggle because I remember way back when, uh, for, it must be about 15 years ago, I went over to Turkey to interview Harry Kuehl for a, a a kids show called Football Stars of Tomorrow. And we landed at the airport. And of course, our cameraman had all this gear and we're having trouble getting it all through customs until one of them 
asked what we were, we were there for. And as soon as we mentioned Harry Kill, oh, goodness, people turned up in their pyjamas at 2 o'clock in the morning to wave us through. It was extraordinary. <laughs> so you're, you're absolutely right. And I imagine mentioning Sam Kerr's name probably produces the same effect these days in the, in the women's sphere. hundred percent. hundred percent it does. Jane, you're working, I imagine, on a, a contracted event again, and you've spoken about how throughout your career you work on these projects, and sometimes that does mean that they come to an end and you need to look for a new opportunity. What's that like? Do you get that real letdown after after all the, the, the party's over and the lights are turned off? Yeah, I really, I do remember in Sydney after Sydney 2000 getting the post-event blues a little bit. It was like, oh, what do we do now? What happens now? <laughs> you know, you've been so busy for so long and then it's like, ooh, what happens? Um, but it is, it's an interesting time at the end of an event because, you know, there is a period at the, at the back end, just before you're about to deliver, that your whole life becomes about the event. So it's sort of nice to have a moment, take a breath, reconnect with people that you may not have seen for a while. Um, and then sort of regroup and think, do I want to do this again? Do I not want to do it again? What, what's going to be next for me? I mean, I've always, um, I've always, I've been so fortunate, I've always had additional work straight after. So after the Asian Cup, it was the Olympics. And then after the Olympics, it was into, into football. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, it never concerns me. I know that there's always going to be something around the corner. Um, and, yeah, it's just it's an exciting time to know what is going to be next. And I'm guessing working on all these exciting events that friends and family must uh, be pretty thrilled to have a, a contact. Do, do you get called on? Are you like a ticket office as well? <laughs> Look, I have been asked for access to tickets in the past. And I always say, give me your credit card and we'll sort you out. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Uh, how far ahead do you, do you plan your life? Do I plan my life? How far ahead would you plan it? Like when you're looking at, so 2023 by sort of uh, September-ish, you'll have had a break and, and when will you have thought about what you're doing or will you just need some time out? Well, I finish my FIFA Women's World Cup contract at the end of December, 2023. Um, there's always post-tournament um, reviews to be done and a transfer of knowledge to help set up the next host um, and the like. So that's quite a nice period of time because you sort of, the pace slows down a little bit. Um, and you do a really solid wrap up. And so it is during those times, that time though, that I'm able to have a think about, okay, what do I want to do next and start talking to people because you've got more of the, the, the space to do that. Um, and then just to see, to see what's next. I don't really plan too far forward. It's funny, I can sort of chunk my life into a timeline of major events. Whatever year, I think, oh, what event was I working on then? Um, but um, yeah, I, I don't, I try not to rush, and the opportunities I know will come, especially knowing what we've got lead, leading into 2032. So um, yeah, I don't get too worried about it. Um, you know, that's the merry go round that you jump on when you, when you dive into, into this event business. Well, I can't believe with your crazy life and, and how busy you are that you've actually had time to uh, chat to us on Trailblazers today. But tell us, what does a regular day in the life of Jane Fernandez look like? Wow, a regular day when we're not in COVID. <laughs> what is regular yeah. now? It's hard to remember, isn't it? I tell you what, I've never walked so many kilometres in my life than I'm doing now. The weekends are spent walking and walking and walking. Um, but look, I family and friends are super important to me. I'm, um, I don't have any of my own kids, but I have seven nieces and nephews and 
you know, I love, you know, pre-COVID, um, you know, spending time with them and also with my siblings as well. I've got a great network of, of friends who I love dearly and, you know, love to connect with them. You know, we used to go out a bit. We don't really, can't do that now, hence the walking. <laughs> Um, and I try, look, I don't, I don't know if there's any such thing as work-life balance anymore. I think that's sort of a little bit out the window, but trying to find harmony where you can. So, you know, sometimes some weeks may be more work-heavy. Um, other weeks maybe, you know, there's more time to be a little bit more social, give time to those that you love. Um, but I think, you know, making sure that you can get some type of harmony within that is super important. And I think I'm pretty good now at knowing when I actually need to refill the tank. Um, because, you know, you can burn out with these events because it's, you know, it's go, go, go all the time. But I think, you know, knowing when you need to refuel and knowing how you do that, for me, you know, jumping in the ocean or, you know, being outdoors, spending time with those that I love are really critical to, to refuel the tank for me. Jane, it sounds like you've got everything nailed, uh, the perfect uh, career and the perfect life, and you're going to deliver the perfect event. I have great faith, and I can't wait to see how that goes for you in the run up to 2023. In the meantime, from us here, thank you so much for taking the time out to share your experiences and chat to us on Trailblazers. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for having me.